Welcome to Two Psychologists for Beers. I'm Yoel Inbar. With me here is my friend and host, Alexa Tullett. Alexa, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you, Yoel? Good. I'm excited to have you introduce our guest. I think, is this our first guest that, we, that we've had on together, just you and me? Unless you count your former co-host, then I yes, do not. Yes. Mickey doesn't count. <laughs> no, no. Uh, would you like to introduce our guest? I would like to introduce our guest. So um, today we have Danielle McDuffie. Um, Danielle is here. So she is on the show because she's a clinical psychology grad student um, in the department at the University of Alabama, which is also where I work. Um, and she is in the geropsychology concentration. Um, she does research on things like minority aging, uh, particularly among African-American populations. She's also interested in things like religion, spirituality, bereavement, grief, and positive psychology. Um, so she has like a couple of accolades that I'd like to mention. So, so first of all, she's the recipient of the APA Distinguished Student Service Award. Um, and she is also currently the PGSA president. So the Psychology Graduate Student Association president, um, in our psychology department. And I mentioned those things partly, uh, to just uh, mention how great Danielle is, but also because they're sort of relevant to the reason that we wanted to have her on the podcast. Um, because uh, I, I was sort of interested in hearing, Danielle, you talk about um, your experience sort of starting out as the PGSA president in the department. And over the past couple of years and last year in particular, you really sort of pushed our department to sort of grapple with some, some diversity, equity, and inclusion. I think that's the, the favorite acronym of academics, um, so DEI issues. And so that was something that I really wanted to hear you talk about. But anyways, um, for now, welcome, Danielle. Thank you. That was very thorough. Couldn't have done better myself. So <laughs> thanks. That was great. It was a wonderful intro. Yeah, thanks for joining us, Danielle. Um, I mm -hmm. uh, I always forget to talk about beers, and I feel like we need to do that now before I forget and we go on to other things. So uh Guest always goes first, Danielle. What 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 are you drinking today? Oh, the guest has a wild card. I actually don't like beer. Sorry to the listeners. So I am doing hard cider. Oh, y'all can't see this because this is audio recording. <laughs> I'm doing an Angry Orchard Chris Apple hard cider. It is as close as I could get to beer without actually drinking beer. Awesome. Uh, we get mocked all the time for like not drinking the right kind of beer, not liking beer Ooh. enough. So you actually really fit in with our vibe. Love I would it. Say. Yeah, we've done ciders before, right, Alexa? Uh, true. And actually, I'm going to be I'm going to subvert our rules even more intensely than Danielle did today. So <laughs> um, I'm I'm just I'm drinking a chocolate milkshake and I was going to introduce this as a non-alcoholic bushwhacker um which danielle do you know what a well actually yoel or danielle do you know what a bushwhacker is i do not i feel like it has something to do with chocolate <laughs> it's basically it's basically an alcoholic chocolate milkshake um but i'm gonna drink beer for the second half but but um megan picked me up from class today and she brought me a milkshake and i wanted to drink it so here i am well that's very sweet and i support it a hundred percent. I guess I'm the only one actually drinking beer, um, <laughs> which is a weird position to be in because I'm normally the one uh, subverting the rules. So this is uh, a Vox Populi, which is a microbrewery from around here from uh, Quebec. And it is a kettle sour. So I think it's a, a white beer with some like orange or lemon in it. So I'm excited uh, to see how this tastes. It seems like it's going to be very summery. So I'm going to crack this 
bad boy open. It sounds like slightly less like beer than my chocolate milkshake. I got some on myself. Mm. <laughs> wow. Yeah, basically, it mostly tastes like orange juice. It's kind of like carbonated orange juice, but but it's good. Okay, thumbs up. Carbonated orange juice sounds actually lovely. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> mm. Okay, so um, do we want to get started, Alexa? Do you wanna do you wanna sort of take us away? Yes, I will take us away. Um, so I thought um, we could start out maybe by talking a little bit about your journey to Alabama, Danielle. Um, so if I remember correctly, we can, um, yeah, if I remember correctly, uh, you came to Alabama from New Jersey. Is that right? Close enough. So I'm from New Jersey. I came to Alabama from Philly. Uh, so the Northeast. Okay. okay, okay. Um, so you, you grew up in New Jersey and spent some time in Philly before coming to Alabama. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so I'm curious, I feel like Many people have asked me about my trek from Toronto to Alabama. I guess people sort of like don't anticipate that people will make that move. Um, And I suspect that people also don't anticipate that people will move from Philly to Alabama. Um, So basically, I'm curious, like how you ended up ended up down here, um, both in terms of how you chose to move to like Alabama as a state and Tuscaloosa as a a town, um, but also how you chose to sort of come to this school for a clinical psych degree? It's a great question. Um, The answer that I have been giving people as of late is that I was young and naive. Like, shout out to the program at UA. Maybe should have given that a little bit more thought, but I'm here now. It's great. I'm at the end. I knew that I wanted to work with older adults. And so when I did my very unprofessional, loose search of clinical psych programs that would allow me to do so, It came up with like California, Colorado, Alabama. I feel like that sounds right. California was a little too far for me because my family lives in New Jersey. Colorado felt unrealistic. And so my family's from Louisiana. And my mind thought, oh, Alabama's right next door. You'll be great. Never seen my grandparents' house in Louisiana. Only been to New Orleans. (laughs) Like not... The Louisiana, that would be comparable to Alabama, but, you know, my spirit told me that it would be similar. 21-year-old Danielle. Um, So I decided to come and apply. I interviewed, and this is also like a cautionary tale to people applying to grad school. Please don't do what I did. I applied and listed who I wanted to work with and knew nothing about them except for the research interests that they had on the website. So my mentor coming in was Dr. Martha Crowther, wonderful black psychologist. The day before my interview, so I was already off the plane here. Day before my interview, the grad student that I stayed with was like, who are you interviewing for? I was like, oh, the clinical Jero program. And she's like, nope, that's not the way it works. It's fine. I was already here. I met Martha and did not realize that Martha was black until the day before. So I'm in Martha's office and we have this very candid conversation. And she's like, I feel like if you're a black woman pursuing higher ed, you shouldn't have to pay for a thing. I said, great. I agree. (laughs) Didn't know that was the rule, but (laughs) I agree. And Martha, the wonderful human that she is, helped me get a lot of funding on top of what the department was offering when I first came here. And once again, naive 21-year-old Danielle thought that Alabama and Louisiana were close enough that it would be the same thing. And the money and the perceived familiar- familiarity got me here. 
So now that you know the real Alabama, uh, how similar is it to Louisiana? So you spent some time in Louisiana then, right? Um, I've spent time in New Orleans and I've spent time with Louisiana ends, whatever they call themselves. Um, no, 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 no. I play it myself. It's, it's fine. I am a lot more Northeast than I thought that I was. I thought that having Southern grandparents and great aunts and uncles, I would fit right in. It would be the same. Was not the case. Should have investigated more. Did not. Ended up here. So can you tell me a little bit more like what you expected um, Alabama to be like and then what your so how your experience um, was inconsistent with those expectations? Sure. I think I expect a lot of different things. So I came here alone. Like I don't have family here. My family who was in Louisiana moved to New Jersey well before I was born. And so I came to Alabama alone. And I think as a Black person moving from the North to the South, you come in with a lot of notions of how Black people might be treated. And so I don't necessarily know that I came here expecting the worst, but I was maybe naive to expect that the South would be over some of the racial, ethnic, XYZ barriers that they're not yet over. I came in thinking, I came in thinking that I would struggle to some extent, but maybe not the way that I actually did end up struggling once I got here. And I also didn't expect, which again, naive, didn't expect Alabama to be so slow. Coming from a big mm-hmm. city like Philly, Alabama is very slow. The language, the transportation, the things to do, everything here is very slow. I did not prepare for that. And I think that's a little bit different than what I expected as well. So um, I understand this question a little more now uh, that I've had the chance to talk with you for 10 minutes, but uh, Alexa wrote this um, where she says, you're somebody who's very good at saying exactly what they mean, even when <laughs> that opinion might not be the most popular. Um, and uh, it, well, first of all, I guess the question is, do you think that's right? Do you agree with that? And if you do, uh, how did you come to obtain that skill? And can you advise other people who are perhaps more conflict averse on how to channel you a little bit? I do think that's an accurate description of me. I will say, I don't think I always used to be like this. Um, If you were to ask my mom, if she was somewhere wandering in the back, which she's not, but if she was, and you were to ask her how I was, she would say I was a very meek child. She would call me scary. Like I did not speak up a lot. I was very conflict averse. I think it was maybe high school. Yeah, I was in high school and I went to a predominantly white high school and there were only a few black people. And I was someone who, for reasons that are beyond me, kind of fit in every group, don't necessarily know how. And there was like a senior year social event going. It was something very arbitrary, like a limbo contest and a black boy won. And one of the white guys that I was friends with was like, oh, of course he won. They're built like that. And I was like, who is there? And I feel like that was like my kind of awakening. But when I came to Alabama my first year, I was told by my mentor that the faculty felt that I was not fitting in because I was pretty quiet, did not really speak. 
in class or socially. I was the only Black student in my cohort at that time. And so the rhetoric was that I was not fitting in. But I have this philosophy that if you're not looking for something, you can't see it. But once you see it, you can't unsee it. And so I started seeing how I was feeling. I started talking to at that time, like the three other Black students in the department. And I started seeing that we were all feeling pretty similar ways. And then I think the Northeast just kind of took over. We're very blunt back home and the South is not. They're very sweep it under the rug. And that's not how I was raised. And I think it just kind of blossomed from there. Um, In terms of how people could be more outspoken, It's actually a great question that I don't necessarily know how to answer. I'm just very passionate about the quote unquote right thing and speaking up for people who feel like they cannot. And I think that has worked against me at times, but I, it goes back to like, once you see something, you can't unsee it. And I started hearing how people of color felt in the space that we were in. And they felt like they did not have the energy or capacity to speak up. And I figured, why shouldn't I? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I think that often when you ask people who do something unpopular or risky, why did you do that? They say something like, well, it just didn't seem like there was any other choice. Like if it wasn't going to be me, who was it going to be? So it it kind of feels like you got put in this situation and it sort of brought out of you this willingness to say unpopular things because you you thought, well, otherwise nothing's going to change. Or, you know, if I don't say something, who's going to say something? I feel like I very much operate by a dichotomy. Like I tell people this all the time and they rarely believe it. I'm very much an introvert. Like I don't like speaking out. I actually get somewhat anxious before I speak out. It just kind of becomes the dichotomy of be anxious and say nothing or say what you feel you need to say. And hopefully it brings about change. And usually the latter wins out. But like even in the department, there was a moment. So when we first were going to release the results of the climate survey, I ran it by PGSA. I was not president at that time. I ran it by PGSA and some of our PGSA exec board members were like, oh, but did you run it by the directors of clinical and experimental training? Like, did you tell them this is coming out? And the way that we had posed the survey was to be a survey for students by students. So for me to release the answers to the students, I was just telling y'all what you said. And yet the rhetoric was very much like, did you talk to these important people? Because they might not like this. And so the dichotomy came back in, in terms of like, y'all slash me are concerned about offending someone about a topic like race. And to me, that just feels very backwards. Like race should not be an inherently offensive topic, frankly, especially not to white people. Like y'all are not the oppressed race. And so for me to be a black person and to have these narratives being told to me about how other people in the department, not just racial minorities, but other minorities are feeling and us to be like, "Mm, that's kind of scary. Did you run it by someone? I think that's what kind of formed the Danielle within the department that I am now, that we're operating out of fear of saying how we feel. That feels wild to me. 
So you mentioned this uh, climate survey. Can we can we talk a little bit about what that is um, and what led you to to create it? Sure. Um, so I'm actually not the creator. I just kind of get credited for it because I think I'm maybe the person who has most radically displayed their responses to it. Um, to my understanding, like a past president of PGSA, maybe like three, four years ago, had worked with the director of clinical training to put together this survey to kind of get the views of how students felt the department was doing with diversity, equity, accessibility, and inclusion. I was told that the survey was distributed my first year. I never saw it. And so there was like a lapse of about a year or so. And then the clinical concentration in our department came up with their own diversity committee and the clinical concentrations diversity committee wanted to re-up the survey. So it was myself and a student named Haley Potts. We volunteered to help with it because we also were serving on PGSA. And that's kind of how it came about. Truthfully, the only reason that I distributed the results the first year is because Haley had stepped down from the diversity committee. So it wasn't like a Danielle's going to champion this. It was like Danielle's the only one left. And what did these results show? Uh, I imagine if your uh, the people you were working with were so worried about disseminating this that they were sort of explosive or, or could you know make people uncomfortable. So so what did you guys actually find? So okay, being from the Northeast, now I feel like Alexis maybe heard me say this before. Like I kind of like chaos. Like it's a great time for me. Like just kind of seeing things go to shit is a great time if I'm not in the middle of it. Um. And so the quantitative, it was a quant and qual survey. And so the like multiple choice responses were pretty much as you would expect. Like 80% of people said they didn't really see a problem with diversity, equity, accessibility, or inclusion in our department. It's also coming from the notion that about 80%, if not more, of the students in our department occupy majority identities. It somewhat fits that you would not see something wrong with an environment that's benefiting you. But when we got to the qualitative responses, so the responses that people were writing, I'm trying to, because we've done the survey for two years. I'm trying to remember the first year, what was so bad. One of my favorite quotes was that, I don't know who said it because it was anonymous, but a student wrote that Martin Luther King once said that he fears that we tried to integrate into a burning building and Gordon Palmer, which is the main psychology hall, is on fire. And that one just stuck with me. First of all, I thought it was hilarious. I love a good quote. Um, But also that stuck with me. I know another person had expressed feeling like, this might've been the second year, but someone said that like the fish thinks from the head. And so like, theoretically, loose interpretation of whatever that person was saying, because it's anonymous, but that like the people in authority within our department are the ones that are kind of souring the whole department in terms of DEI. Um, there were some particular people that were named in terms of being aggressors. And so I redacted the names before I sent it out. But I think that also led to a lot of speculation amongst the students about like, oh, they're probably talking about X, which also kind of stirred up more issues of who was doing what. Um, there were some student concerns expressed about how they have felt, how they have felt passed over for GTAs. So like assistantships for those who are not super psychologically inclined listening, like assistantships and opportunities to be paid 
within the department. There are students who felt like they were being passed over. I was very candid about my experiences. Like I had an experience in the department where I was told by a faculty member that I look mean. And so I should disclaim to all of my professors that I just look mean. I'm not angry. I'm not mad. Like I should give a disclaimer for why my face looks the way that it does. A resting bitch face um, uh, disclaimer. Precisely. Resting black bitch face, to be exact. That I should give a disclaimer for that. And so a lot of that got stirred up. And I think in a department like a psychology department, where everyone is so big on feeling that they're emotionally intelligent and we are wonderful, we care about how people feel and think and behave, hearing that you've grieved your students hits very hard. And I think that's where a lot of the fear about sharing the results came from. Mm, I remember having that experience. I mean, I'm sort of embarrassed to say, like when we got the results of the first climate survey, I remember having the reaction of like, wow, I didn't realize um, that there were so many students who were having these negative experiences. And yeah, and like, I think that I also had this sort of mentality of, you know, I'm um, a professor in a psychology department. I sort of understand these things. I'm sort of like up to date on these things. Um, yeah, and just being, just being like really embarrassed and surprised. Uh, that like I, that I hadn't known what was going on. But I think it's important that you can admit that because I think a lot of the fear to release the results were the professors who were just in denial. Could it be the case in the psychology department, in this department? Can't be the case that people feel that way. And I think that's where a lot of the bigger problems started opening up. I think that um, that with the specific examples, people were like, whoa, like I didn't realize that that was happening. Um, and also, so Daniel mentioned that some people were named and names were redacted and stuff like that. And that also gets people on this sort of like, well, who is it? And like, you well, know, obviously I wanna, once you I redact be... the name, everybody's going to be like, oh, who said that shit? Right? <laughs> Which in some ways is like also a bit of a roadblock because I think people's go-to reaction is... Um, okay, there's like a couple of, of bad apples, shall we say. And, um, and surely like they, they weren't talking about me or something like that. So in the time that I've been at Alabama, I would say like kind of without a doubt, the last year has been the most contentious. So we have always prided ourselves on being like a very collegial department. Um, one of, <laughs> although like half of the department pronounces that word collegial. And every time I hear that, it like, <laughs> no, that's wrong. That's wrong. That's, that's wrong. And those people are terrible. <laughs> um, but yeah, we pride ourselves on being this sort of like warm atmosphere where people get along. And in terms of interactions between faculty and things like that, I've only worked at one school, so I have no point of comparison. Um, but yeah, there has never really been much, like nobody gets in fights at faculty meetings. There's not a lot of contention and nothing like that. Um, and then this past year has been just like a hotbed of tension from like every angle. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm curious about your take on that. Like, where do you think the tension is coming from? Um, and do you think, do you think it's been, is it a bad thing? Is it a good thing? Is it neutral? 
Okay, I should probably disclaim the I like chaos comment with saying that like, I don't necessarily know that I like chaos. It's more so like, I am very blunt. And so seeing people be uncomfortable about mm. blunt situations amuses me. Yeah, right. Um, I think a lot of the tension comes from fear of being wrong. I think that people who occupy majority identities, which I very much do as well. Like I'm very much of majority identities. And I think that when we're in that position, it is difficult to one, be wrong and two, to feel like we've oppressed other people. And I think that survey and the DEI work that we've been doing very much puts people in a position of realizing that you might've been wrong. Like despite your best intentions, you very much might've been wrong. And I think the result of that is a lot of defensiveness and it looks like tension and it's really just people being defensive. It's very much people trying to cover their ass and being like, I did not do this. I was not this person. We shouldn't be talking about this because it's not a real thing. And it feels tense, but what it really is, is people trying not to accept fault. And as a human, I get that it's very hard to be wrong, but I also don't know that this is a situation where we should be playing rights and wrongs. And I think that's a lot of what's happening in the department. People are trying very hard to be right instead of just trying to grow and accept. It's funny that you mentioned this because I, I have this recollection of, it must've been in a class, but it could have been in some other context where you asked the question, this was in a, was, we were not talking about the department or anything like that. It was like, we were talking about social psychology or something. And you were like, why is it that people dislike being wrong? And I was like, that's kind of a fascinating question, actually. <laughs> like, it seems to drive a massive amount of human behavior. Um, and it, I guess it's like not immediately clear to me why that should be the case, especially when in contexts like these, it feels like there is uh, this this obvious alternative pathway that has a lot of value. Not that I'm saying I find this easy. I certainly don't find it easy to like admit fault and um, and and admit that I have things to work on or things like that. I, I don't take criticism any better than the next person, I don't think. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it just seems so obvious that you could like hear a criticism like that and be like, okay, we were wrong. Um, we should adjust the way we do things. Um, but, but people find that very difficult. Yo, well, you're a social psychologist. <laughs> <laughs> Why do people not like being wrong? I mean, to me, a lot of it is about like prestige within the group and like, I think liberal white people, Danielle, I'm curious whether you agree with this, but like they, uh, at least in, in word, uh, they really are super egalitarian and anti-racist and being accused of being even racially insensitive is a terrible thing. And so if you face that accusation as a white person, your first instinct is like, oh my God, my entire reputation is at stake. I'm going to get dragged on Twitter. I'm going to get canceled. They might fire me. And so it becomes this very like life or death situation where it's harder to be like, oh yeah, sorry, no, that was an insensitive comment. You're right. I said that out of ignorance. You know, I'll try and do better or whatever. Right. Because it feels like these 
like really existential stakes. And it sort of, I think, ironically comes from at least the professed commitment of these folks to being super egalitarian, super anti-racist and so on. And that being sort of currency among a certain kind of like uh, liberal uh, white person. I, I don't know what you make of that argument. I think it's fair. I think. I have a lot of thoughts on this topic. One is that there's a difference between being and doing. So out of all the things that have happened in the department, we've started like an idea book club. And I don't know why I say we could, I didn't start it, but people in the department have started this book club um, to focus on inclusivity, DEI, A, accessibility, the letters. Um And we were reading a book and one of the questions that I posed to the group was, it's great to say that racism is wrong and that you are against all of these things, but what are you going to do when your back is against the wall? And I think that that very much is relevant to a lot of the liberal white people. Like, it's wonderful to say that you hate racism and oppression is terrible. And yet when you're in a situation and it's between you and some oppressive act that you see happening to a person of color, minority person, and your back is against the wall, what are you going to do? And I think that's very hard for a lot of liberal white people to reckon with, because I think the being of being a liberal white person is, of course, we'll step in, of course, we'll help. If we saw George Floyd, of course, we would step in and record and do all of these things. And yet when you're in that situation, even on a minor level, when you're in a classroom and your white colleague is assuming that the black person is angry, what do you do? And I think that's a very hard reckoning point for a lot of the liberal white people and just people in general. Like, don't get me wrong. It's not just a liberal white thing. But I think that's something that the liberal white, because they're so committed to the end of oppression, it's something they don't often have to reckon with. It seems like if I'm not actively racist, if I'm not this person from the sticks who hates everybody who's not white, then I'm good. And that's not all that it should be. What you're saying, Danielle, about like what people do when their back is against the wall or when they're presented by like the behavior of their colleagues or something like that, and they're in a position where they could sort of step in. I mean, I think this is also where Yoel's point about um, how like central it is to liberal white people's identities to be um, egalitarian and anti-racist where this also gets in the way because we're also so, um, reluctant to accuse other people of being insensitive or something like that, because it suggests that you're like sort of condemning somebody as a person. Um, and I think, yeah, I think that defensiveness happens at a personal level, but also at maybe even more so at a level where, people are extremely afraid to challenge their peers in any way, um, which I think leads to a lot of problems. Yeah. It's like an excess of niceness. Right. And, Mm -hmm. and yeah, like bringing this stuff up or even worse, confronting somebody is obviously going to be socially uncomfortable. Uh, So I don't know if you guys know these studies from Carrie Kawakami's lab at York, where she has, um, 
predictors and she has experiencers. And the predictors are given a description of the situation. So, for example, you're in the waiting room for an experiment um, and uh, you're in there with uh, another white person. These are these are white subjects uh, and a black person. The black person leaves the room and the other white person like says like an overt racial slur. What would you do? And everybody's like, I would tell them that's not OK. Right. And then, then they actually run it. Right. So they actually have RAs do this. And like very few people actually say anything because in the moment it's so uncomfortable to confront somebody and and you're maybe questioning yourself it's so non-normative you're like maybe i misheard i mean i'm kind of imagining what what goes on in somebody's head but it, i think it's really an underappreciated fact about psychology it's just very tough to do things that are socially uncomfortable and i think a lot of bad things are done because people just don't want to rock the boat uh they don't want to upset their friends and people they like. They don't want to tell people things that they don't want to hear. Um, and I suppose it comes back, Danielle, to your willingness to be uh, a little more disruptive, right? Uh, to tell people things that they don't want to hear, which is not, I, I think, a, a normal, well, normal is, that's that's too, that's too strong. It's not a common characteristic, I would say. I think that's fair. Um, and I also want to say, like, there's a level of fear to it, even being someone who's so outspoken. Like, there is the fear that things I say, despite them not necessarily being wrong, but things I say that challenge the structure will come back and bite me. That when it's time for career opportunities or for me to move on in life, things will come back to me that I have said, you know, I stand by everything I said. And so I get how it is not necessarily the popular thing to do. And I get why it's not the popular thing to do. And also in this current space, being like our department, grad school, my time as a grad student, I was struck by the notion that the department was so big on wanting to be inclusive, but was falling so short. And I think that kind of propelled me as well. So I wonder, maybe it would be helpful to be just a little more specific about what are the sort of gaps that you are seeing either like in your own experience or that people were reporting on this survey, where did they see the department falling short? So a lot of people mentioned a lot of microaggressions, which could be like a whole podcast in itself, but a lot of microaggressions that they were feeling and experiencing just like slips of the tongue or people saying things that they did not realize they were saying I'm very candid about my experiences, about like the I look angry or I was in a class that was talking about diversity issues and I shared an opinion and it came back to me that I was told that I was being off-putting, which is interesting as a Black student talking about diversity issues being called off-putting, but it's neither here nor there. Um, and so I think things like that that were happening to me, a lot of other people were seeing. Like I can remember... There was a lot going on in my life and I was having a conversation with a professor in the department and I did not respond to something well. I was angry because I felt slighted about something. And so this faculty member and I had a larger conversation and I don't know if she meant it or if she was just trying to match my anger, but she had said something like, yeah, you can't be angry like that in the real world. Like I see it and other people have seen it and they're just concerned about the way that you're presenting yourself. And I'm not a crier, but like I 
cried and was like, I can't do this. Like having to not be me and not feel like having to be the token black person, person of color, whoever, who just comes in and smiles and goes home. I can't do this. And like that led to a whole reckoning with that particular person. But I think it was experiences like that students of color and students in marginalized identities feeling like they either had to be perfect or they could not be. A lot of that came out in this survey. You mentioned also that there was um, some talk about TA assignments. So were there concrete things like that where people felt like, I don't know, because of my group membership, I'm not being preferred for this uh, desirable assignment or something like that? Yes, but let me say I can't verify that. But the person who expressed it felt that because of their group membership, they were not chosen for what were more ideal TA positions like advising. Like they were made to be like a TA for a class and were not essentially paid to advise undergraduate students. Now, I've never been an advising TA, but to my understanding, it is a more attractive position than grading 100 Psych 101 papers. Yeah, it sounds better to me too. (laughs) Hello, I saw you, I know you, I knew you. I think I can remember your name. Hello, I'm sorry. Welcome back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. So we're on Twitter at Four Beers Pod. Uh, you can at mention us or DM us. Uh, that will go to me. Uh, if you email fourbeerspod at gmail.com, it will go to all three of us. That is me, Mickey, and Alexa. Finally, our website is fourbeers.com, and you can find our entire back catalog there. You can also drop us a line there as well if you prefer. If you're enjoying the show, um, Please just uh, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. It just helps other people discover the show. And and we also enjoy reading the reviews. Um, Alexa, anything I've left out? Nope. Sounds good. Okay. Awesome. Uh, well, let's do a, a quick round of what are we drinking. Um, Danielle, would you like to go first? I would. I am drinking the same Angry Orchard that I was supposed to be drinking in the first half. We've been making you talk too much. No, I thought it was a twist top and it was not. So that was a very (laughs) awkward experience trying to twist it in my sweater. But now it's fine. It's open. 
So I'm drinking the same one. Dude, one time I had a beer that I thought was a twist off and I just with my hand, right, like did like this. And like, I still have the scar. You, I probably can't see it on the video. Yeah, I sliced my fucking finger open from like knuckle to knuckle. <laughs> Sorry, it's kind of a gross story. But uh, but yeah, so uh, at least <laughs> at least you used your sweater, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Better than me. Um, Alexa, what about you? Are you still on the milkshake or... I moved on from the milkshake, so now I have a rogue bat squatch hazy India pale ale. Nice. And I have a Drav, D-R-A-V, I guess is the name of the brewery, uh, India Session Ale. It's a session beer. It comes in this lovely pink can. I like that can a lot. It's very nice pink. Yeah, thank you. All right. I'm going to crack it open, try not to get it all over myself. Oh, God. Mm. I like it. It's pretty light. And if you don't like summary. Yep. Same. This is good. Excellent. Um, okay. So we had before the break been talking about um, the survey that Danielle uh, didn't originate, but worked on, worked on disseminating some of the conversations that happened as a consequence of that. And I'm really curious to get your guys's perspectives on like, well, how did the department actually react both in terms of like, you know, how did people react kind of emotionally in the moment? And then, and then what was done, right? Like, what have you guys done to, to respond to some of these problems, if, if anything? So I guess, Alexa, I would love to hear the faculty perspective. Like, Me what too. was this? Yeah, yeah, right. So, so please, what was this like for, for you guys? Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of, um, I think a lot of people shared my surprise, um, and I think Danielle, you're right that there was a lot of defensiveness. Um, so, you know, taking individual examples and explaining, you know, trying to justify why they're not a big deal or why they're not representative, um, looking at the, the results of the survey as a whole and tr trying to conclude that maybe there's only one or two people that are actually dissatisfied or things like that. Um, yeah, uh, trying to figure out like who the culprits were. Um, and so like as a way to sort of absolve ourselves from, from feelings of guilt and also like a lot of sincere concern, right? So I think that many faculty members were um, like shaken up about it and were like, did look inward and think, okay, well, um, what can we do as a department? Um, but yeah, I mean, even, even that is hard because I think that even when we admitted that things had to change at, as a department, um, there's still kind of a vibe of like, we need to change because there's some people in the department who are messing things up for the rest of us or something like something like that. Um, so yeah, I would say that that, I would say that that was the, um, the general reaction. There was also a lot. So one of the things that also came up in the survey was, um, students and maybe one student in particular who had left the program and there had been like a lot of mystery around the student leaving. Um, and this was a black student. And so, uh, 
grad students had a lot of questions about the sort of context of that student leaving. Um, and this is something that I've confronted a lot within, within the faculty and find very frustrating, but also, um, there's not always an easy solution. So there, there was a lot of like grad students don't understand because they can't know all of the information. Um, so some of these things need to be secret. And, and actually in this specific case, like I really, I don't know any of the details. I don't know what happened with this specific student who left. Um, but a lot of like, you know, this is the way the, the, um, departments have to work. Uh, grad students can't know all of these details. They need to be localized within the faculty. Some things need to be, um, confidential, confidentiality needs to be maintained. And so one of the reasons that they, um, they feel like the faculty are doing things that are unfair is because they don't have all of the information. So they don't have all of the information about TA, how TAs are assigned, or they don't have all of the information about the process of somebody leaving the program. And so they can't fully appreciate the fact that we are actually being fair or something like that. Um, which is, yeah, I mean, that's something I think we've talked a lot about as a department because, um, I think that kind of, um, lack of communication, while I understand the importance of, um, anonymity and confidentiality in, in many cases, uh, sometimes I think we go overboard and I think, um, the result is sometimes a lack of communication that breeds distrust. Um, so yeah, anyways, I think, I think that's like a f fair characterization of the different ways the faculty responded. Would you say you personally were like taken aback by this when it, when it came out? I would say that, but, um, I had, I had had a bit of that taken aback reaction earlier. So, Another thing that happened at the University of Alabama um, before the DEI survey, before the murder of George Floyd, was that we had a black dean of students who was sort of like unceremoniously let go. Um, and what had happened in his case was he had made basically like, I think it was um, some kind of like some conservative news outlet had dug up some old tweets of his mm -hmm. um, where he had said critical things about America and about the police. Um, and what it seemed like was that the university panicked and gave him a package um, and sent him on his way. Danielle, feel free to correct any of these details. And so at the time I had talked to um, a friend of mine who is a black professor in a different department. And his advice to me was, you should talk to the black students in your department and just reach out to them and see how they're feeling because they're probably feeling like shit right now. Um, and so I did that with a few students and that was the first time I had sort of really confronted the fact that I was getting a very consistent message from these, I think it was four students at the time, um, who were all like, yeah, we feel like shit a lot. And this is like the latest in, in a lot of, um, a lot of events that <laughs> make us feel really unwelcome at this school. Uh, and, and yeah, I mean, so I was surprised by the, the results of the diversity survey, but maybe not as surprised as I would have been. Um, 
if I hadn't had that experience previously. Danielle, how much do you think, I mean, I'm kind of asking you to speculate here. Is this a thing specific to this department or the University of Alabama or, you know, is it academia generally, psychology, grad school generally? Like, what's your sense there? No, I absolutely. And that's thank you for bringing up this point, because I absolutely don't think it's just a University of Alabama thing or University of Alabama psych department. I think it's all of higher ed. I think that spaces that were not intended for marginalized populations will always run into this problem. And so I don't think it's unique to UA or this program or even psych programs generally. I think it's all spaces where there were never meant to be people or that were not built for people who were not white males, well, white cisgendered males, heterosexual, all the minor, all the majority identities. I think they'll always run into this issue. So in terms of kind of concretely changing things, what has been done and what else is on the table? Like, what are you guys pushing for? There has been a book club. So I mentioned the book club earlier, the IDEA book club, I-D-E-A. Um, and we get together and we read books. And essentially, it's supposed to be a forum for open discussion. The grad students very much responded to the climate survey and started grad student-led committees to address themes throughout the survey. So like retention, recruitment, diversity, syllabi. Um, the grad students very much put that task on our backs and approached that. And so we're in the stage of re-upping that. I know there was a clinical, as I mentioned earlier, clinical concentration diversity committee was created. Um, there is a climate, I can't even remember the name of it now because it's been through a lot of names, mm -hmm. but there's a committee that Alexa helped to create. It's like climate reporting committee, something like that. Climate committee. Uh, anyway, a committee for students to be able to report their grievances more than once a year because the climate survey only comes out once a year. So a committee for more off-cycle reporting of grievances. Um, some people in the department have taken strides to like send out department-wide emails when things have happened that are like egregious violations of marginalized people's rights. So like when the AAPI population was going through a lot of oppression, there were people that were sending out emails about that. Um, the faculty attempted to write a letter like addressing these concerns. Apparently it went through legal and became very diluted, but the faculty sent that out. So I can, I mean, I can get a sense from, partly from your facial expressions and also from the tone of voice, like what do you think are the more and less effective um, ways in which the department has responded to to this feedback? I think the climate committee has the potential to be effective. It also went through a lot of hurdles of startup, which is telling. I think the climate survey in itself has the capacity to be effective. For me, it's, oh, and one thing that we tried doing was we did a all department town hall. And so the students hosted a town hall and invited the faculty to essentially discuss our concerns. I had to leave early, but I heard that it was good and somewhat fruitful. And I think that's what the students are really pushing for. The students that I've talked to are very big on transparency. 
So we've told you the issue, now do something about it, or at least acknowledge that you have received the issue that we told y'all. And I think there was this period of time where it was like, okay, the results of the survey are out, but we're just not going to talk about that. And I think that's where a lot of things started to go wrong. I think the faculty letter, it was good in theory, not in practice. And I don't necessarily think that's the faculty's fault. I was told ad nauseum about how it had to go through legal and the things that had to be taken out. So like, I suppose that's not y'all's fault. I think the end result was not super effective, but the effort, so like in theory, it was nice. Yeah, so um, if I recall, one of the things that had to be taken out of the letter was that, um, or suppose, yeah, supposedly had to be taken out of the letter was that the faculty was not allowed to say, we're sorry to the students for mm-hmm. you know um yeah for for being fucked up mm-hmm. yeah, sure yeah right that's what the letter would have said if, <laughs> or that maybe that's what the letter should have said um but yeah i guess the idea is that like saying sorry admit some kind of fault which then like oh i mean the legal stuff to me is like that that has been one of the things that has made administration completely unappealing to me. I feel like I've had more exposure to administration this past year. And it's like, um, if this is what it's like, if every single decision that you make has to be like run by legal and, you know, be like coded in several layers of ass covering, it's just like does seems not worth it. But also like, if I think about it, not admitting fault is a very legal thing. Like, I feel like on yeah. all the crime documentaries that I watch, they're always like, don't say that you did it. So like, <laughs> don't admit that you did it. Yeah, that's You know, like, one. it seems yeah. legit. Like, don't say sorry yeah. because that means that you did it. And yep. don't say that you did it because you're guilty until, or like innocent mm-hmm. until proven guilty. So it tracks. I mean, Danielle, it seems to me like the stuff you mentioned, some of it is maybe longer term could change people's minds or or maybe just educate them a bit um like a, a book club for example might be that uh some of the other stuff just you know sending emails or sending letters it's kind of maybe symbolically nice mm. but i feel like you really want the day-to-day experience to be better and that 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 seems like a a much tougher problem so i wonder like a do you feel like you've made headway there um and b you know, what can you do? Unfortunately, I don't necessarily know that much can be done. And I think that's hard for me to admit. I think that as students, shedding light is an important first step, but I think the change has to come from within. And I don't know that I can force people to change or that the grad students in general can force people to change. I've said to some people that one of my biggest like departmental fears is that I will leave this year and the department will be like, whoa, that loud mouth girl is gone. Now we'll just keep doing what we're doing. And I feel that there's a capacity for that to happen. And that scares me in some sense. I also just think, I said it before, I think the students are just really pushing for transparency. And I think that even Alexa mentioned it, there's this weird juxtaposition maybe in all departments, but especially in our department, whereas it's like they want to treat the grad students like colleagues, but then on the other hand, they want to treat us like we're their children. 
So it's like, yep, we'll tell you about some of these things and we want you to shape your own training and ask for the things that you need. But then it's like, wait, not too much. Like we are still over y'all in the hierarchy. And I don't know that any real change can ever come about in a structure like that. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, like Danielle, I feel like your take is pretty bleak, um, which I appreciate. um, So you mentioned the sort of the way that the hierarchy and the acceptance of hierarchy might uh, prevent some kinds of changes or be an obstacle to change. And you also mentioned sort of like more broadly thinking about academia in general, that um, maybe there isn't a way to sort of backtrack and say, okay, now these are spaces that are inclusive when they were sort of like weren't designed that way in the first place. Um, But nevertheless, you have decided to be the PGSA president this year. Um, So I'm wondering sort of like how you square the, the considerable time and effort that you spend on these issues with um, what seems like also, I don't know, maybe, maybe a somewhat like pessimistic outlook on the kinds of change that is possible. For me, it's really important to try to be the change. And so I'm really optimistic about my PGSA eboard, especially my VPs, like my clinical VP, Chris Wendell, we are like aligned. Mm-hmm. Like he considers himself the Joe Biden to my Barack Obama, like <laughs> outside of like bizarre things that both of them have done. This is not like a political stance, but like <laughs> effectively just like Biden thought that everything Obama did was great, at least in theory, like just smiled and clapped in the background and was very supportive. That's how my clinical VP sees his role. And so I think we very much are of the opinion that we're just going to go in and shake things up. And we don't know that that will lead to sustained change. It likely will not. And also there needs to be somebody in the room to facilitate these conversations. And like, I'm not always the one to call people out. Most of the times people know that I have an opinion on something because of my facial expressions. Very terrible at controlling my face. And so even if it's a Zoom meeting where I can make a face where people are like, ooh, did that come off a little wrong? That's better than just this hierarchy where the faculty are just doing these things and making these decisions and nobody is saying anything. Now, hopefully that leads to change. If it doesn't, it at least is a year of me getting on the faculty's nerves to the point where they start to think about what they're doing. So, Danielle, thanks so much for joining us tonight. This has really been uh, both entertaining and informative. Thanks for having me. I've never done a podcast before. This is a good time. Wait, we're your first? Seriously? Yeah. The first people that have asked me to talk about my life for like an hour, hour and a half. (laughs) (laughs) hour and a half getting close to two hours now well um we're uh it's an honor and a privilege and thank you so much for joining us yes thank you danielle